0: I'm Cody Calmers, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. My guest today is Nick Chater, a professor of behavioral science at Warwick Business School. Nick is an influential cognitive scientist with a wide range of interests, which these days often tend toward public policy. But in 2018, he published a book trying to draw some culminating insights from the disparate pieces of his own work in cognitive science, as well as the field more broadly. He came to the conclusion that we've dramatically misunderstood important aspects about what the overall picture of the mind looks like. He called the book, The Mind is Flat. And by we, Nick means essentially everyone. His argument is that the notion of the unconscious— we've grown accustomed to over the last century or so is fundamentally flawed we attribute all sorts of hidden beliefs and desires and other psychological motivations to the murky depths of the subconscious mind but according to chater they really aren't there they're fictions there is no such thing as a desire you don't know about according to chater what you see of the mind is what you get it's a strange argument particularly because pretty much every modern theory in psychology and cognitive science presupposes there is some sort of cognitive infrastructure supporting beliefs, goals, and intentions below the surface of conscious thought. So what evidence does he have that there are no such things as hidden beliefs? It's a good question. But another way to frame it is what evidence do we have that makes us so confident that that our minds are these kind of mental icebergs of which we can only see the very tip. That's not to say Nick believes there's no structure in the mind, but after all, we've never really seen a belief. How can we be so sure of, one, of what one would look like? I think there's a certain story about the depths of the unconscious mind that we've started to take for granted. I think it's worth taking some time to rethink that. Nick's alternative is that the mind is continuously improvising deploying behavior to maintain consistency with an ongoing narrative. Instead of simple psychological causes, she believed X and wanted Y, so so she did Z, we are acting in a way to stay in character within our own story. We are like fiction authors, not constructing behavior based on firm psychological truths, but rather seeking consistency, continuity, and growth in the arc of our character's development. According to Nick, To say that the rest of us are acting based on some enigmatic psychological depths is no more true than to say a fictional character is doing so. The story is all there is. Here is Nick's alternative model, in his own words. An improvising mind, unmoored from stable beliefs and desires, might seem to be a recipe for mental chaos. I shall argue that the opposite is true the very task of our improvising mind is to make our thoughts and behavior as coherent as possible to stay in character as well as we are able to do so. Our brains must strive continually to think and act in the moment in the current moment in a way that aligns as well as possible with our prior thoughts and actions. We are like judges deciding each new legal case by referring to and reinterpreting an ever growing body of previous cases. So the secret of our minds lies not in supposed hidden depths, but in our remarkable ability to creatively improvise our present on the theme of our past. Nick introduces the concept of a mental tradition as the infrastructure of the mind. We get into that idea a little bit later on in our conversation. To be honest, I'm not entirely sure what he means by the term mental tradition, but I like it. It takes a well-worn concept, habit, and articulates it with a fresh conceptual edge at one point i press nick and ask him point blank whether he thinks habits exist he says he doesn't i couldn't tell you the exact difference between a habit and a mental tradition but nick's position as i've understood it is that typically we believe we act according to preferences i like coffee so i get it first thing in the morning no he says in fact you're acting according to a mental tradition okay then Maybe I'm against mental tradition. In preparation for this conversation, I found myself thinking through Nick's improvising metaphor with my own understanding of the concept through my training as a jazz musician. If you were asking an improvising musician about why they chose to play a specific note, they'd be able to construct a story supported by musical theory about why that note works in the way that it does. But for the most part, that's just a post-hoc story. It doesn't really describe in any meaningful sense why that particular note was produced in the first place as opposed to any other note, which could also have a music theoretical justification. Yet that's not to say there's no depth there. The underlying harmony does cause the note to come about in a very real sense. Uh, The musician is responding to structure. They're not acting alone. They're collaborating within a certain structure, the structure of the music as well as that of the other musicians, and that strikes me as a kind of depth, and one that has not just significance in the metaphor itself, but also in our concept of the structure of the mind. So what are the stakes here? Suppose this theory is true as Nick presents it. What might be the implications? Here's one idea I came up with. If there are no psychological depths to be found, the only psychological truths are the stories we tell about ourselves and others. They are true by virtue of the fact that we're telling them, in the same way there are truths about Anna Karenina, simply because that's how Tolstoy told the story. There's something liberating about this. We're no longer committed to defending the why of our actions, at least from the perspective of a single motivating psychological variable. This is often what we reach for when we're trying to hold others to account. That may be necessary in the courtroom, but I think it's the source of a lot of tension in our own interpersonal relationships. We need to specify what caused someone to behave in a certain way. Rather, we get to look through a different lens. We get to say, okay, this is what I've done. How does it fit into the overall story? The theory actually gives us an explanation for why the question, why did you do that? can be the source of so much emotional violence in a relationship. There is really no answer. Therefore, any answer necessarily is wrong. Therefore, any answer that someone gives is necessarily wrong and inadequate. And any expectation of an adequate answer is invariably let down. At any rate, this argument by Nick makes me think of something said in a recent episode with Sam Gershman. The point of a model he was speaking of computational models in cognitive science, is not to be right. The point is to articulate the space of possibilities. I do think Nick is right that psychology, with the exception of 20th century behaviorism, has for a long time taken for granted the idea that there are some sort of depths to the mind. His argument is useful because it attempts to paint a clear and compelling version of the alternative. Whether or not he's on to something, I'll leave up to you. But I think part of the exercise of thinking through his position is about gaining a better understanding of what we take for granted in the conventional ways we talk about our own mental lives. Perhaps the mind isn't exactly flat, as Nick says, but I think it's safe to say that we're inclined to ascribe more depth to our minds than is merited, telling more than we can know, as Richard Nisbet called it. If you enjoy this episode, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter for more content at againsthabit.com or leave a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Here is Nick Chater. Yeah. To start off, I think I want to ask you: Can you say maybe just a bit about your your background and and what you do and and how you came to do it?
1: Yeah. So um, so Nick Shater, um, professor of behavioral science these days at Warwick Business School, and I'm cognitive scientist by background, Um, and I am a mixture of different sort of disciplines and interests. Um, So I started off. Um, going way back uh, uh, going to Trinity College Cambridge to do mathematics Um, but I pretty soon realised I didn't want to be a mathematician and switched into philosophy so my initial plan, I don't know if we'll talk about this kind of thing later but my initial plan was that I wanted to do the kind of combination of mathematics and philosophy um, which was the um, the sort of uh, the the, 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 the combination of my hero Bertrand Russell so I'd I'd read Bertrand Russell's um, intellectual autobiography when I was a teenager and also the history of Western philosophy. Um, So I sort of saw myself as a proto uh, Bertrand Russell. That was obviously turned out to be completely wrong on every level, but um, that was the idea. So I then switched into philosophy um, after being uh, kind of realising that pure math wasn't going to be the thing for me. Um, And then um, during my second year at Cambridge of philosophy, I did an optional course in psychology. And that was um, run by a vision scientist called John mollen And it was just so unbelievably cool. I thought, this is incredible how cool and interesting this is. Um, and seems so much more exciting than most of the philosophy I was learning. Uh, so I thought, well, uh, though I clearly want to still really do philosophy, because that's the the, uh, the the sort of the, the deep underpinning of all disciplines, um, I shall, should do some psychology to um, to to, to uh, prepare myself to do philosophy of mind, so I did third year. I switched, in fact, from philosophy to, to psychology for my final year. Um, so then I was, so I really was a kind of mixed up uh, character all through this, this period. But through that period also, I was becoming. or had already already become aware of the existence of cognitive science. So I was kind of also thinking, oh, actually, um, this is quite a good mixture because what I really want to be is a is a, a sort of philosopher of cognitive science. So I was still stuck on the philosophy at that stage, um, and I can, in fact, I can remember one of my uh, friends, a guy called Steve Jenkins, who was an undergraduate with me, saying, well, i saw very well. This philosophy of cognitive science. Why don't you just do some cognitive science?" I'm thinking, I my think, "Well, that's a bit rash. Um, I don't know about that. That seems you know, seems very much too, uh, too too close to the cold face. I should be thinking at a higher, highly abstract level without uh, contact with actual actual models and data." Um, but it didn't turn out that way, as it turns out. Um, so so yes, yeah, so I went on from of that to do to, to Edinburgh, uh, where I did a PhD in um, in cognitive science and natural language. And um, so that, then, in those days, Edinburgh had a centre for cognitive science, which has now been folded into the um, Department of or School of Informatics. So it fused together with with computer science and AI. But in those days, it was its own quite small department, and that was just great and a very uh, very interesting uh, period. Um, so I came out. Very much thinking of myself as a cognitive scientist by that stage, um, and had lots of interesting, uh, interesting collaborations, some of which have continued to this day from that period. And then I did a, took a number of jobs in psychology departments, but just was where the jobs were: uh, UCL and then Edinburgh again, and then to Oxford briefly, where I now to live. And, um, and then, then from from um, from Oxford, I went to Warwick in psychology. Um, and then briefly went to London, UCL again, and then back to Warwick again. Um, but I've sort of hopped around um, from place to place uh, quite vigorously. Um, but in practice, my um, my interests have really, really have shifted, I've shifted a bit, but they've, I'm still, the weird thing I find sort of introspectively is that I think the, the things that I thought were really interesting when I was about 18 or 19, or even younger, are still mostly the things I think are most interesting. Uh, maybe a few things have been added. But like basic questions about you know the, the nature of meaning or um, yeah, how it's possible for a, a machine to think and all these sorts of things which I find myself just sort of musing about um, in, in in sort of uh, uh, when my brain's as it were otherwise at rest those are just the same things that I always found fascinating so it's kind of great um, great sort of stroke of luck really to have found um, a, a way of living a life and getting paid money to do it. you spend your time thinking about things that you just think are weirdly, endlessly fascinating. And not everybody would, and I don't recommend them as uh, inherently more interesting than other things, but for me, it has just been literally endlessly fascinating, and I just find the whole area of cognitive science and its surrounding territory um, at least as interesting now as I ever did.
0: God, you know, it's it's funny you mention the Bertrand Russell autobiography, at least I assume part one of it, uh, because it's three volumes in length. But that was actually a huge book for me as well when I was early on an undergraduate. And in particular, there's a passage early on when when Russell himself is about 16 years old. And he comes up in this aristocratic family. And, you know, he's got a lot of advantages and everything. But he's also pretty unhappy. He's pretty miserable. And he has this moment where he's like, you know what? I could kill myself, but I'm not going to. Why? Because... I want to learn some more about mathematics, and that seems like a good enough reason to keep going and there is something about that that like the fact that you can motivate a life in large part by these pursuit of of these questions and these interests and that sort of stuff there is something genre defining about that for me, you know yeah
1: no that's very interesting i've i forgotten that um but yeah there it is kind of a strange thing, isn't it that um yeah, you can actually the kind of core motivation for your life and sense of sort of why, you, why you're bothering um, uh, to, to engage with the world at all is is quite, you know, to a large extent, driven by these very, very abstract questions. And it's not as if you're even necessarily solving them. And that's one of the things I think is, is very very much a sort of personality trait. For some, for some people, um, you know, engaging with really tricky, abstract questions is kind of fun for a bit. And then there's that sense of, well, now we're stuck, aren't we? Um, and that you just want to move away, and that's a completely reasonable reaction. Um, and the weird thing is that for some people, that kind of, that sort of puzzling and intractable nature is somehow endlessly alluring. And of course, you do have that feeling of, or at least I think it would be frustrating for there with no tractability at all. So it's sort of making sort of tiny inroads and thinking, I don't know, I, I'm a bit clearer about that than I was before. Oh, this makes a little bit more sense. It's not, a, It's not really a sense that you're going to, solve these things in their entirety I mean, hardly likely but there's yeah there's the, the the kind of struggle with them and the kind of continual um new angles and interest and um different i mean it's like, very weird that one can take some basic question um and i most of the questions i think about really are when it comes down to it philosophical questions by make by background but of course most general questions are um but like thinking like, what does it you know what, what does it mean to, 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 for an action to be good say um or, or what does it mean for it to be right in terms of some, some social sense um you can think about these things and obviously you can't have a definitive answer to them but you can occasionally think oh i'm seeing that question a bit differently than the way i was before let me think about it again let's try it from this angle and that you know, why is it that for some of us that is an interesting pursuit um with really not, you know, not 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 in remarkable um, signs of gigantic progress, and it's very very strange. But it is a very real thing, and I and I think it's you know, relatedly it's a slightly broader point. But it's very it's very charming to me that lots of academic researchers, once they retire, just keep on going just as before. And I, I guess I I'd imagine I'll do that. I hope so. Um, but I think that's again quite extraordinary, isn't it? That um, no one's paying you anymore, then you can do anything. But you kind of think, yeah, but the thing I really want to do is this thing I was doing all along. You know, I, having done 40 years of it, I want to do some more. And that's, it's, it's very strange.
0: Alternatively, uh, it, they could be sort of engaged in a long standing mental tradition and having made it to between 75 and, and 80, no longer have recourse to uh, to, to re uh, reevaluate what other options there might be. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, or does that sound in line? No, yeah, yeah. Any ideas that you've heard, you've heard recently?
1: Um, well, I think <laughs> yes. I mean, it's absolutely it's absolutely true that uh, that we are all of us liable to get stuck in our own particular um, sort of mental um, prison. Um, and I mean, yeah, clearly, clearly, we all do that. <laughs> so, one of the jokes in my family, uh, this is my own you know, immediate family, is that just about whatever topic is ever mentioned. Um, I, I'm very likely to say, oh, well, my theory of virtual bargaining that we've been developing, that's, that's very relevant to this question. And there's always, always a look of like, oh, God, here it is again, because, because you know, whatever, you know, it is the classic case of um, if, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a
0: nail. Um, and so if you have a said, theory of virtual like, bargaining, then everything looks like a, a, a bargaining, bargaining table.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, it, it's one of those things like um there's so many abstract ways of looking at the world. And um you can yeah, once you once you get into the right mindset, you can start to think, well, it's all about sets, really. Everything in mathematics is all sets, or you can think, oh no, it's categories, or you can in, in you know in, in um, computing, you could either think, oh, it's really just computability theory; you just need Turing machines, or oh, it's other stuff that's irrelevant, or, or, or whatever. Um you, you can you know, there's so many ways and similarly you could think you know if it's all chemical everything's really chemistry or you know, whatever you like um and and of course similarly one can think and i have thought at times oh well, it's really just you know the mind's just a bayesian you know they're basically all, all cognitive problems are basically bayesian problems so you know that's another sort of um uh prism from which you can view the world And and it, and it, i suppose that it's kind of critical um if you're going to be if the field is going to work well, that, that the field as a whole doesn't get locked into any particular perspective and is able to pursue multiple perspectives and also sort of shift around and triangulate and so on um, between perspectives. But um, but at an individual level, um, yeah, of course, we all have a, a tendency to get stuck. Um, and so, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm trying trying to try to try to. I don't, I don't' know if I'm too bad at that. I mean, my virtual bargaining may be a, a counter example because i I just do think yeah I see it everywhere in a slightly obs- obsessive way. Um, but on the other hand, I'm kind of i'm always kind of interested in um, solving problems which I haven't really got a clue about um, and trying to use different methods so I'm, I'm not someone who's thinking, I mean, and I think this is very much a strategy and personality trait thing. People, people could be very successful in research with different strategies, but I think some people do have a method. And I think this is, this is my set of tools, and I will use the set of tools to and point it at different things. And, of course, in my virtual bargaining example, I'm going a bit down that track there, but I don't think that's my normal track. I think my natural instinct is to be more interested in problems and to think, oh, well, maybe we can take it like, like this or maybe some other way or some totally different way. Um, and so I'm not so much locked into particular approaches. Um, but I, I was, yeah, but of course it's always a mixture, isn't
0: it? So I've been reviewing a lot of your various work for, uh, in, you know, preparation for this conversation. And I must say, you know, I, I was interested in the, the mind is flat book when it came out and I never really got around to, to getting deeper into it. And, and I kind of really, really got into it this, this, this time around and, and, uh, really enjoyed a lot of the stuff that you had there, but also had a lot of, uh, I guess, questions about it. So I'd kind of like to to take that avenue for a little bit. And I'd kind of like you to, you know, convince me that the mind is indeed flat, as you say. Um, or at least, you know, go go along that, that, that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, just to kind of kick it off, so this is your book from a few years back, The Mind is Flat. And I want to just get clear on the kind of main arguments that you make in there. So the first... And the sort of overarching one is that the idea of of depth as as a motivational force underlying behavior, so that there is these sort of murky psychological recesses which contain all of these, you know, beliefs, and desires, all these sort of classical notions within psychology, that's actually a fiction. That's actually not necessarily the case. And I have a quote here from you that I think, uh, you know, gets gets into that pretty well, that I'll, that I'll read. So, the problem with our everyday view of our minds is far deeper. No one at any point in human history has ever been guided by inner beliefs or desires. Any more than human beings have been possessed by evil spirits or watched over by a guardian angel. Beliefs, motives, and other imagined inhabitants of our inner world are entirely a figment of our imaginations. The stories we tell to justify and explain our own and others' behavior aren't just wrong in detail; they are thoroughgoing fabrication from start to finish. So, my question for you is: uh, What evidence do you have that no human has ever been possessed by an evil spirit?
1: <laughs> yeah, none, really. Um, so, no. I mean, I'm, I guess it, it, the. Um, Proving proving negative is always a, is, a, is, a, is a mugs game, isn't it? Um, so I suppose the the rationale for that kind of thinking is saying if we can if we can think about the world without having to worry about evil spirits, which I suppose conventionally we do. But I might be wrong about this, but I suppose we we think we can explain um, behavior, of, uh, including abnormal behavior, without invoking evil spirits through through other other roots. Then we just set aside the evil spirit theory. And I suppose I want to take the same perspective with the with the motivational power of beliefs and desires. And I think I think they, that that's um, possibly also with the evil spirit theory. If you try to spell that theory out, it might turn out to be rather incoherent. And I think the belief desire story turns out to be incoherent too. Um, but really, yeah, I want to argue that um, it's much easier to explain and much better to explain the way um, we think about the world by as a process of um, as a sort of analogy based improvisation. So when I'm facing a particular challenge, which could be of any form, it could be explaining something, it could be engaging in some perceptual-motor interaction, or anything you like. Um, I, I, I could be, um, I could be thinking, you know, what's my what's my uh, underlying theory of the way the world works, and you know, what's the location of every possible object in the room, and all this kind of thing. What are my utilities? What's, how do I plan my optimal action given my beliefs and my utilities. I could be doing that. Um, but I think it's just a much simpler story. And uh, I've got particular difficulties with particular things I don't like about the um, or feel a, 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 a problematic about the belief desire story. But, you, but it's much easier to just say, no, you're 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 primarily basing your current actions on a fairly shallow path of the world where you're doing a lot of a lot of the work is being done by similarity to past similar experiences. Um, So I'm quite strong, so I'm sort of a believer in a a very sort of example-based, case-based approach, Um, but which is not to say that it's it's, a case-based or example-based approach, which is based on a a shallow representation. I think this is something that we often mix together and and, and was mixed together in my mind for a long time. So it's natural, I think, to to some extent to think, well, if you're reasoning by cases, um, say we're doing, doing image processing or something, then we should be just the, the measure of similarity in images should be some you know, very very low level thing, As you know, some, something computed from low level features. I think that's not the right way to think about it. Um, I think that the representations we're creating are really deep and um rich is what they are. They're rich and abstract, um, but. The you've given so those rich and abstract representations are being used to help I mean, help us guide guide our way around from one, from one situation to the next. So I'm always thinking, well, this situation is a bit like that one I came across before, and I did that then, so I'll do it again. I'm not reasoning it through in that way, but you you've essentially got this battery of past experiences which you're drawing on. Uh, but but the, the 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 thing about the our ability to do this is that we're able to use past experiences in incredibly flexible ways. So it's not that where we are, we're not just sort of doing a table lookup. We're doing this incredibly, incredibly clever um, improvisational sort of trickery, really. Um, so I suppose the, let me say a couple of things. So the positive part of the story is to say, well, it's like we have this feeling always. I think that we're skating on thin ice. You know, one finds oneself thinking, you know, I don't quite know what I'm saying here. I don't quite know how to do this. Somehow, it sort of just about seems to work. I don't really know quite how. And I think that we should take that that intuition as as, as telling us something real, that when we blunder through the world, um, we can blunder through the world and and make make a muddle through and make our way in it without really having uh, a deep understanding of what we're doing. And thank goodness for that. Um, and that's the magic of human intelligence so that that improvisational ability. Um, but the flip side, the, the, the sort of other side of the story is that if you tried, if you tried as I used to think we should, if you tried to Spell out the um, the kind of belief desire story, uh, or or a you know, yeah, probability utility story if you put it in decision theory terms, then that story just never really makes any sense. Really, it's just it's just endlessly complicated. It's like vast, and and, and the you know, the models of the world are just so massive, so interlocking, and so too so difficult to so intractable to do any computing with. And yes, like it's just a hopelessly complicated thing. But it's also true that we're just wildly incoherent at the basic level. Um, So it's not, one one reason the belief-desire story doesn't work very well is that it's kind of, if you try to tell the story, it kind of goes on forever and is ever sort of endlessly complicated. But the more deeper problem is it's it's just not consistent. So if you ask people about their beliefs about things or their, their value, their utilities, they just tell you contradictory stuff. You know, just and they will keep on telling it to you, Give asking more questions, they will continue, contradict themselves more and more. And and that's because, I think, we're, we're working in this very local way, a very kind of patch. We're, sort of, you know, um, we're in one part of the space of problems, and we're you know, dealing with that, with, with experiences related to that part of the space of problems. Move me to another patch, and I'll do something else. If you say, well, how do those fit together? The answer is, ah, you've got me there um and then i might do some new improvisational stuff to try and explain why i do one thing over here and another thing over there um but at no point there's there's no sort of global model uh, of the world and there's no global which would be a sort of global set of beliefs and there's no global set of desires either um so we're just much more patchworky and and i suppose so i kind of there are loads of illustrations of this but the kind of thing i like i suppose is a very simple illustration is the these kinds of examples that um In thinking about decision-making that Eldar Shafir gives uh, when he gives these lovely problems where you give people a choice between something which has some really good or good and bad features mixed together. So this could be a holiday destination, or it could be uh, a parent who might have custody of a child, or it could be a gamble with a big positive payoff, but possibility of a negative payoff. So something which has good and bad features mixed together. And on the other hand, you have some boring option which just had a bunch of medium features. And the lovely thing that uh, Shafir finds is that if you give people a choice and say, well, which of these would you, would you like, people have a propensity to say, well, I'll have the thing with the extreme, extreme features. Um, so I'll have the extreme option rather than the boring option. And if you instead ask the same people, or at least a similar group of similar population of people, which of these would you like, you can't have both of these, you've got to reject one. Which are you going to reject? They also tend to reject the extreme option. And the explanation that Shafir gives, which I think is for me was a revelatory point really, um, is well, if, if you've gotta if make a choice, you've got to think of a justification. And if you ask someone to, if you ask me to choose something, and I think, oh, I've got to find a really good property of this thing that makes it a good thing to choose. So you're priming me to think about positive features. So I think, you know, asking me about various possible holidays, I think, well, this holiday has got you know, this wonderful culture and beaches or whatever it is, um, so I can choose it. But the very, if you ask me to reject something, you're making me think, it's priming me to find reasons which are negative reasons, like something there's something bad about this, this holiday or whatever it is. Um, and in that case, I might think, yeah, but this holiday is really expensive. can't afford it. Or it's like you know, a huge amount of carbon, carbon burning because it's a long flight and I don't want to do that. So I will then reject the extreme option, as well as having just accepted it. So the thing, but if you ask me, well, what is it really? What's your real preference? Um, because the standard belief desire model, standard decision theory model, would be well, there's got to be a real preference. You must one like, prefer one to the other. Um, but I, I think this these, these very simple framing effects are really telling you, no, that's the wrong way to think about it. I literally haven't made up my mind before you ask. When I think about making up my mind, that's an active process, and I'm constructing an answer. And that's you know, that's preference is coming from the process of construction. And depending on how you prod me, I'll you know, think about one factor as being more important than what other factor being other factor being less important. But it's kind of a mistake to think. But deep down, you know, what was your real, your true preference? And I think you can say the same in in any domain, really. Um, I mean, so so, so, so a similar, but slightly different point would be. Um, thinking about what happens when you try and get people to articulate their naive beliefs about physics or chess or mathematics. Um, so when people started doing sort of good old-fashioned AI, it seemed like a good strategy to, to build an intelligent chess-playing machine or a, um, a good mathematical theorem prover or a good uh, physics engine would be to just ask people, well, how does, how does the world work? Well, you tell me, I'll put it in logic and put it in my computer. Um, but, of course, that failed immediately because it turned out that, A, people weren't very articulate about what they, they did know, but, B, to the extent they were articulate, that, that everything they said was you know, liable to be inconsistent with everything else they said. Um, and it's just, again, it's in the same same way as with the Shafia story. If you say to me, you know, why is it that, um, you know, would it be that a cannibal would fall faster than a cabbage? Um, and then you think, well, I think, yeah, pretty much it definitely would. And then you, um, you say, then you ask a few more probing questions about vacuums or um, I don't know the, the inverse square or something, and then you might suddenly find find yourself thinking, oh God, there's a bit of a contradiction there. What's going on? And you suddenly re- realise that you you, I mean, you can ask the same question in fact in slightly different ways. You talk about a cabbage uh, a cannonball, and you, most of us will think, oh, a cannonball's got to fall quicker um, aside from the air resistance. But um, but on the other hand, you might say. Um, you might ask some question about how gravity works in, in an abstract form, where it'll be obvious that the gravitational, the acceleration due to gravity is independent of mass, just like what's the equation, as it were. And I can say both those things quite happily, and in, in contradiction. Of course, they are because because physics is confusing, and I'm confused about it, and I don't understand it very well. Um, and the idea that my mind secretly has a deep physical theory and has some t- total model of reality, I think is completely wrong. I think our you know, experience of um, when we're when we're trying to explain what we know, um, we're improvising. Where we're cooking up a story, and that story, if you ask me about some other aspect of what I know, I'll cook up a little local story for that too. And if you say how do they fit together, the answer will tend to be, "Oh gosh, I'm not sure they do." Um, but, but then I'll try and fix it. So it's not that we're wantonly inconsistent. Um, we want we're we trying to be consistent all the time. It's just inherently an impossible task. Um, you know, if the world is too complicated. Once you've got a, reasonable, a certain a reasonable amount of data of any kind, you know, consistency becomes an intractable problem. So, you which know, inconsistency is, is just the start is the norm. So, trying to trying to assuming that there's some kind of global model of um, the world in, in lurking within our minds, or that there's uh, a standard, a, a full set of um, utilities across all possible like states of states of the world, or something. I think this is just a you know, kind of a hopeless hopeless direction to go in, really.
0: Okay, uh, well, that was definitely a jaunt across quite a lot of territory. Um, I must say that if your argument is essentially that the basic premises of pretty much every account of psychology are uh, completely and obviously wrong, I, I, that, uh, that last uh, you know, discourse there, I can't say that, that that fully convinced me to the side. So maybe we can, we can unpack some of the, the things that you, you touched on there in a little bit more depth. Um, so I want, I want to talk about improvising a little bit. And this is kind of your alternative model to the, you know, sort of classical beliefs and desires depths, uh, psychological depths model. And so your kind of basic framework here is that what's happening in the mind is that the reason we don't fall into to mental chaos and be all over the place, the reason that we're able to, to, to be fairly coherent in, in who we are is that our minds are, are improvising in character and we're, conti- we're uh, continuously trying to act in a way that creates something of a consistent or something of a coherent narrative. And yeah, I'd like you to play this, this argument out a little bit for me, specifically from the perspective of like, presumably you believe there's some structure in this shallow extemporaneous mind albeit horizontal rather than vertical so this structure is sort of playing out across uh time rather than in this big deep iceberg like cross section at any one time so what what does that structure look like and and, and what kind of coherence does it achieve
1: yeah that's a very nice way of putting it the horizontal rather than vertical the, the, the depth right? it's, it's horizontal structure rather than depth i think it's exactly right so it's the the, the base, I suppose, the essential idea is that um, if, if each improvisation is drawing on the fruits of previous improvisations, then it will be the case that I'll be somewhat coherent over time because I'll think at a very crudest level, if I'm wondering what, to, what, what I'm going to drink in the morning, I'll find myself strongly influenced by the fact that mostly I have a cup of coffee in the morning. So I'll mostly do that again. Um, and you know, I, I just get locked into this pattern and if you ask me, what do you prefer in the morning? I think, oh, I have a preference for coffee. Um, but it's really, I'm locked into this pattern. Of course, I can break out of that pattern. I can, I mean, be something will push me out of that pattern. I may suddenly try something else, try may you know, get bored with it or whatever. But um, but I think the, the essential idea is that part, future improvisations are, are always based on, on uh, past improvisations that will produce regularities. But that sort of sounds boring in the sense that it sounds like you're just going to get locked into particular patterns of being, but you're not actually going to do anything new. And I think what's interesting is that that's not not the case. We are, we're creative improvisers. So Morton Christensen and I have been thinking a lot about this in the context of language. Um, so we have this new book, The Language Game, which is, um, which is all about the improvised nature of language and viewing uh, language as... Um, Essentially, those fundamentals of communication is coming from um, sort of improvisation and communicative abilities. So the sort of idea here is that um, if you if you if you if you have no language in common with somebody, um, then you have to somehow make yourself understood. So you, you you gesture and do facial expressions and point at things and do sort of um, uh, mimes, and that allows you to to, to make some make, make some stab. At understanding somebody else and vice versa, so you can get some information across. But if you do that for a while, you'll start. You'll find you'll start to develop. Um, system, this will become systematic. So, for example, um, deaf kids with hearing parents um, have, have, have over, over history developed lots of home sign languages, which are not fully complex developed languages, but they allow particular kids uh, to interact to, to communicate quite effectively with their parents. So they've essentially created a kind of code. But as we know from Nicaraguan sign language, if you have uh, several many um, children, deaf children, not given linguistic input, but able to interact with each other, they can pretty rapidly, in a period of ten or twenty years, in the Nicaraguan deaf schools, they've managed to manage to create a really pretty rich um, language. So starting from you know, sort of ad hoc communication, which again is improvisation, it's local, you're solving the community problem of the moment, but each improvisation then allows you. I think that the analogy we have here is is, is charades, um, um, charades as I will call it, being a British speaker. But I'll try and call it charades. Um, Thank so you, very the, generous the, of you, Nick. Because otherwise, it's simply baffling, right? Like, what, <laughs> what is this thing? <laughs> um,
0: Wait, sorry. So, before we before we talk about charades, yeah. can yeah. so maybe maybe I'm being slow here, but maybe I missed it. Did what do you think? What what kind of structure do you think exists in the mind?
1: Well, that's a pretty hard question, isn't it? Um, but I do think so. Well, I, well,
0: like one thing you could say is, well, I think that there are such things as beliefs. So that that would be an easy answer to that question. And you've told me that that question is unequivocally incorrect.
1: Yes. So I would say more like there are um, there are essentially in, in instances which are in, of, of past experience and past action, which are encoded in quite abstract ways, and those are the things that are being. Recycled and uh, reused. So the and, structure in um, a word replayed. is
0: narrative, and we can talk about what exactly that means. But the I, you also have this term that I really like: mental, mental tradition, uh, which I, I think I alluded to earlier. I think that there's a lot in there that that's interesting. But that that's you, in in a couple you know words, is it's narrative and mental tradition is the kind of infrastructure of of, of thoughts that can, can replace some of the other the other terms that we've been we're more accustomed to yeah i mean a, way, a
1: par- an interesting parallel might be with thinking about how um cultural evolution works so we we don't tend to think of societies as, 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 as whole entities as having beliefs um or at least only in some sort of rather strange sense um but but society but but in, individuals across the society um have all kinds of you know about ways of thinking and coping with the world that the society itself may may as a, or a whole set, whole nation might behave in a way where you think oh it looks as if you know this country wishes to you know get more interested spend more of its energy on you know, tech or it's um it's it not a, its not it's, it's it's interested in increasing its land area or it's it's interested in you know whatever it may be the, the, the whole the, the the country or um, an aggregate of people can seem like it's behaving uh, like a relatively coherent entity, but we don't we don't attribute the uh, this is like a sort of Daniel Dennett point here. You can take, take the meaningfully intentional stance to a um, to a to, to a business or a, uh, a group of people or a country, um, but you don't actually think that there are um, animating beliefs which are somehow causally active. It's a sort of useful fiction, really. Um, and I think that that's a sort of similar story um within the mind so, so another thought would be markets So think about a particular aggregate which is kind of interesting to economists of course um is that you know, within a market um you might say well you know what is what are the market think today the market's more positive optimistic or pessimistic or it's worried about the, um it's it's it you know, gas is going to be very very hard to come by therefore the price is going up so you have a sense of what the market believes but we don't we see that as a sort of aggregation of lots of individuals and those individuals might be thinking in a very local way, and they might be thinking, oh, um, I think the price might go up in the next five minutes, so I'm going to buy quick or whatever. They, they, they may, or, or they may be trying to fulfill specific orders for a specific business, if, say, if we're dealing with gas, say. So, But the aggregate effect of that, all these sort of little local decisions, um, and those decisions will, will be um, reinforced. Will be, all those individual people will be tending to do the thing they did yesterday and so on. Um, those will lead to aggregate effects like, you know, the market being pessimistic or the market thinking that the, 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 uh, the, 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 the electric cars are, you know, are going, to, going to expand rapidly or whatever. Um, those, those things are, those, ag- those aggregate effects um, are products of lots and lots of little local interactions. Um, and I suppose I, I see the, the mind as rather analogous to that, Um I, mean, I think markets are quite interesting because they also say something, or oh, they're an interesting analogy with respect to coherence. So markets are not particularly coherent in the sense that you know there's always mispricing and there's you know, arbitrage opportunities all over the place, and that's why there's you know, like vast numbers of people make money um, trying to find those arbitrage opportunities. But the very fact that, that um, the, but, but the 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 read which the markets are coherent. Is because um, there are all these little local agents looking for incoherences and trying to fix them, and I think you know the human mind is a bit like that too. So it's not just that there is this sort of natural tendency, I think an inherent tendency for us to spot inconsistencies in our thinking and try and fix them, and we essentially spend our lives doing. I mean that's what thinking is. I mean, you know, the deliberative thought seems to me primarily is a lot of it is fixing inconsistencies because I'm thinking if if it's if it's kind of obvious but I want to do something or I believe something, or I, you know, I believe something, I should be careful, but if I, if I want to assent to some, assent to some, some statement, and then there's, there's no, it's a kind of easy case, then I'll simply do it. I'll simply say, yes, Paris is the capital of France or whatever, without any queries. But deliberation comes, comes up when I think, ha, ah, you've got me there. Now, on one hand, I think this, but on the other hand, I'm not sure, I seem to think this as well. So I've got some kind of inco- incoherent, problem of incoherence, and I've got to resolve it. So I do a bit of deliberative thinking. Um, so I then make it, make some kind of decision about which way I'm going to go, um, how I'm going to resolve my inconsistency, and that local patch is making the whole system a little bit more coherent than it was before. Um, so I see that. So I think there's a there's always this process of the system, the mind trying to see inconsistencies and fix them. And I suppose I, as I say, I see that as a, a large element of what deliberative thought is there for.
0: You know, I, I the mean, tradition
1: points yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I really like
0: that that metaphor comparing individual minds to, you know, collective bodies, collective action. I think we're way too way too committed to the idea that the mind is a unified thing and uh, I think we can often get really interesting and potentially correct ideas about looking at how individual organisms such as humans work together to create larger scale things such as societies i think there's probably a lot of overlap with with how um more more so than we often think about how, how that actually works for us as individuals but there's um you know there's this paper that i really like by a professor named fiery cushman uh, whom I, i'm sure that you you know Yep, he's a psychologist uh, who studies moral cognition at Harvard. And the paper is called Rationalization is Rational. And the thrust of it is that our, our intuitive response to rationalization is to think that it's just making up stories after the fact. So, you know, we do something for whatever murky psychological reason, then after we've done it, we can look back and we can give a clear story about why we did what we did. That's, that's rationalization, but there is, uh, but there's no guarantee or there's not even really like a reason to suspect that the story corresponds with the true reason behind our action. And so fiery in this paper looks at this and says, well, wait a second. Uh, actually I think rationalization serves a purpose and, and a very important one. And to me, it's a very similar argument to the one that, that you made, uh, particularly what you're just saying just now. And so he says that, uh, rationalization is actually about creating consistency across the different psychological modules that we, that we have in our minds. And I've actually got a little quote here that I'll, that I'll read just to, um, so he can give his perspective uh, about, in his own words, of, of, of what this looks like. But from the paper, why is the mind designed to construct post-hoc rationalizations of its behavior and then to adopt them? This may accomplish an important task, transferring information between the different kinds of processes and representations that influence our behavior. Human decision making does not rely on a single process. It is influenced by reason, habit, instinct, norms, and so on. Several of these influences are not organized according to rational choice, uh, that is, computing and maximizing expected value. Rationalization extracts implicit information, true beliefs and useful desires, from the influence of these non-rational systems on behavior. This is a useful fiction. I'm sure you'll like that term. Uh, fiction because it imputes reason to non-rational psychological processes. Useful because it can improve subsequent reasoning. More generally, rationalization belongs to the broader class of representational exchange mechanisms which transfer information between many different kinds of psychological representations that guide behavior. So is that is that kind of account consistent with your own would you argue that it necessarily that you have to accept the the conclusion that you've come to about the sh- the shallowness of, of the mind in order to believe something like that what, what do you make of all that
1: no no i mean I, I think that's very much very in my mind at least very consistent with my perspective in fact i remember having a very interesting chat with fiery um years a few years ago where i was saying i was giving my normal instance-based uh, approach to the, how the mind works and saying, what well, it's like case-based law, I mean, the, the case-based legal system. Obviously, each case is being decided um, by comparison with previous cases. Um, and that's kind of an instance-based thing, but of course, you know, the, the lawyers are continually creatively saying, "Ah, well, this case is actually analogous to this case over here, which you didn't think was analogous; it was analogous to, But here, you know, here's a reason, and so on. Um, so, so the you know, that's one of my favorite analogies. But um, Farah pointed out, yeah, he said, "Yeah, but remember, the the judges have to write an explanation. Right? They have they have to give an explanation of why why they took a particular case to be relevant and for another one not to be relevant, and in what dimensions." So, so I think this was you know, Safari was basically saying, yeah, but there's this rationalisation part of the story, and that's really crucial. So it's not that it's just that you, 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 or it can be crucial. So it's not just that you make the comparisons; you then have to provide, or it's an important, potentially important part of, in this case, in one case the legal process, but in the other case the cognitive process, to actually produce a story which says, and this is why I'm doing it, and that will allow you to interrogate consistency, of course, more explicitly. But it also will again shape your future behaviour. Because having said this is my rationalisation, this is my set of reasons. This is, these are the dimensions on which I think uh, similarity should be judged in the case of my legal case. Then I should be I will then store that, uh, which could be that that can then be referred to in future deliberations. So if someone um, has a similar kind of dilemma to deal with. They can refer back and say, Well, Judge X said that the, you know, the relevant dimensions were this, and the other, other factors were irrelevant. And so, that prima facie is an argument that, that I, uh, judge of the moment, should take the same view. So, so this process, this sort of dialogue between um, examples and generalization from examples and provi- provision of reasons. And then more examples, and more reasons. I think that kind of sort of endless sandwich is very interesting. And I didn't. I think this is probably we we're chatting about this before fiery's paper, um, but so I'm not sure, or he may have written a paper and I hadn't read it yet. Um, but, uh, but but yeah. I mean, I think I think I think his paper is great, and I think it's very 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 compatible. The only tiny thing I would add, which I'm not sure if Fiery would particularly disagree with, but fiery's in this quote you gave is talking about how the one of the purposes of rationalizations is to deal with the different mechanisms that generate behavior. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. But I think I would also say that even within, yeah, as it were, central cognition, if such a thing really makes sense, that, that even there, um, there's this, this plethora of, of, of different forces. So I think some people think, uh, think there's, a, you know, there's a kind of habit system, and there's just all these various systems for making decisions. and And, and one of them is the one that does the sort of full Bayesian calculation and figures out the right thing to do um, as best it can um, based on, you know, based on this kind of classic belief-desire story. And obviously I want to deny there is any such story, any such account. So even the, the central central cognition um, picture for me would be it's like, a, it's like a legal tradition with lots and lots of different cases, and they're not fully coherent, and you can draw on lots of different ones and get contradic- slightly contradictory uh, answers. But over a long period of legal wrangling and thrashing about, you will you know you'll be mostly consistent enough on cases that tend to come up a lot, uh, but there'll always be new cases that baffle you, and they will always have to adjust and adapt. Um, so, I, but yeah, I think I think the the the, the function of rationalisation, I think, is is very real. So I don't at all want to say it's not important. It's probably also important in terms of defining the character. So, the sense of why am I? You know, what kind of person am I supposed to be supposed to be? Um, and you know, trying to maintain to live within that character, I think that the rationalization is probably playing an important role there too um, so it 's not that i 'm just bouncing from one in a sort of unreflective way from one behavior to the next. I'm able to step back and think what am I really trying to achieve Here's in coherence um, you know am i really am I really trying to you know um, eat tasty things or am I really trying to get healthier? oh, as a, you know, what, am I, what am I supposed to do? I, I, my, my, I'm going to take this view, take this line, and my rationalisation is, you know, don't worry about tomorrow, live for the moment. Or my rationalisation is, um, you know, um, you know, uh, I don't know, some, something the opposite of that, some, you know, some sort of uh, um, point that you should, you should care about the, the, your future wellbeing despite it, and counteract your myopia. But you know, whatever it is, that rationalisation itself will play a causal role in related behaviour.
0: Cody here. I'm going to keep this short and sweet, but this interlude goes on for another one minute and 30 seconds. If you just want to skip through it. If you have not already, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. If you like this episode, I promise you will like the rest of my work and the Substack newsletter is the best way to keep up to date with all of that. I try to improve just a little bit every week on the quality of these podcast episodes, and each weekly post features the most interesting idea that I could find, which gives a cognitive science perspective on the pursuit of meaning in work, life, and relationships. Of course, if you buy a premium subscription, that's a huge help to me, and I really appreciate it, like a lot. But even just subscribing does a lot to support me in my work, The number of free subscriptions is the single most important number I track to see how my platform is growing, which in turn helps me get better guests and more opportunities in the future. More people on there also means I get more feedback and I can see which ideas are landing and which ones aren't. So yeah, please check it out. I put out new podcast episodes every Tuesday, new posts every Friday. If you subscribe to the Substack newsletter, you'll get all of those right to your email inbox. Again, you can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. So I guess I just want to get clear on this. There's this, this line uh, in what I read from Fiery that um, you know human decision-making does not rely on a single process. It is influenced by reason, habit, instinct, norms, and so on. You, you kind of made reference to that. So are you denying that... Even those sorts of concepts, habits, instincts, uh, moral and social norms—do those do those have well, a place in your? Yeah. Is that is that are those well, also on the chopping block, or or, or where? Yeah, what's the status good, of those guys for
1: you. Uh, yeah, I'd certainly I'd certainly want to put reason on the chopping block um, and say no, the idea that There's a a system a, re, a system of reason. I think is really really a mistake. Um, I think there's lots of local local patterns of of um uh, of, of thought that we we, we, we we use a lot um but they tend to be inconsistent with each other i mean you can see that of course if you if you try to spell out um rules of inference even for the most, the most trivial thing like for things like if then or um if you try to try to think how, how reasoning is supposed to work or knowledge like if i know something do i know that i know it do i know that i know that i know it? and all those sorts of things if you write right just write down a few a few, a few examples of things, that, bits of patterns of reasoning that seem very sensible. The immediate, the, the big lesson number one of mathematical logic is you'll immediately hit inconsistency. Just have to write down a few things. And say, well, these, these have all got to be right, haven't they? Oh no, I've blown up and got an inconsistent system. And that just happens, you know, it's a, the very first, you it was the first thing you do is become inconsistent. So, so I think the, the idea that the mind has a set of reasoning principles. Um, or there is a system of reason which is itself cons- consistent, is it's really, really wrong. Um, so it's more like, um, you know, if you think about how we do mathematics or arithmetic, say, I mean, we have a, a, some, all sorts of little rules for doing little bits of arithmetic, um, but we certainly don't have a consistent model, a consistent axiomatization of arithmetic in our heads. And those little rules will clash with each other, and we'll make mistakes, and we'll, you know, get into a terrible tangle. And I'll have all kinds of incorrect beliefs about things that are obviously true, but are in fact false. And that's fine because I'm I'm just this plethora of little tiny sub rules. Um, but that, but each, and each of those sub rules will be potentially operating in quite an analogical way. So I'll be thinking, well, I know, you know, prime numbers seem to work like this, so if these other kind of numbers I know, they will probably be pretty similar, or whatever it may be. Um, so I have, you know, all kinds of analogical um, and, uh, and rule-like local snippets of knowledge, but they can't be consistent. Uh, in fact, I mean, I couldn't possibly have a consistent model of mathematics, of course. Um, but it's the same, I think it's the same story everywhere. Now, whether I want to say... You know, the whole, I mean, I think I probably do really want to say I don't really believe in habit as a concept. Or oh, I
0: totally believe that you do want to chop as uh, as many of those concepts off as possible. Yeah. So go ahead. Uh, I, I think I, I probably should just come out and say yes.
1: <laughs> this is a safe yeah. space for, yeah.
0: uh, for declaring that. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, I know.
1: When mean, you're taking habit, for example, when I just want to think of habit, it's just continuous with the rest of cognition, really. I mean, habit's the kind of thing that, that you you think is operative when when there's no particular um, creative insight leap being made. So it's like, yeah, I have my coffee in the morning because um, I had my coffee the, the, not the day before. Um, so it looks like habits. Um, because I'm not actually doing any particular cognitive work um, to think. Oh, it's a different situation. If I go to a, if I'm staying in a hotel and I suddenly think, Oh, wait a minute, my normal coffee is not there. I got to, oh, I'm staying in Japan. I think, Oh, help! Um, I don't know what anything is, and I've got to do something different. Then you know, I, I, I may still end up drinking coffee or something coffee-like, but I'm, I'll have to do some you know, some, some, some harder work. Um, and I, I think it's, it seems to me like a mistake to think there's a, dis, a rigid distinction between the cases which adjust the habit system uh, versus the quote reasoning system. I think it's just all every, every, every new, every new situation a bit different. Some, some are a lot different. It's just the difference. The difference is a matter of degree is how much work you have to do to get from past experience to the current circumstances.
0: Um, okay. Uh, I guess I want to set that thread aside for a second and I want to get into something that I really like in your account, which I think is to me, one of the most attractive aspects of it. And it's that um, you bring up this word a lot, which is interpretation. And overall, I'm a really big fan of this deeper consideration of of this idea. And I believe it's something that's it's it's truly something that's unduly overlooked by cognitive scientists. And this is actually a pretty big area of of, of interest for me. So the the sort of background here is that you can generally divide strategies for acquiring knowledge into two separate camps you've got the hermeneutic and you've got the empirical so you know the first is essentially what they do in the humanities and the sort of main method is interpretation there are no quote facts to discover right it's uh it's you know interpretations to try out and, and and see 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 how they work um and and this is particularly useful this hermeneutic hermene- hermene- approach uh, when you want to know what something means, right? So there's no scientific experiment that can tell you what the, the meaning of a book is or or how to interpret a political symbol, that sort of thing. The best you can do is come up with a plausible interpretation, right? And so on the, on the, on the other hand, you have science and the empirical approach and you employ experiments. In the best case scenario, these experiments, they'll yield some facts. And uh, so you have this trade-off, right? Where there's uh, the goal of one method is to discern meaning and the goal... The other is to discern something closer to the ground truth. And psychology and cognitive science pretty much rely almost entirely on the empirical method. And I would say, uh, and this is something that you mentioned in the book, that the flagship example of the hermeneutic method is Freud and the other depth psychologists. And so in a way, to sort of bring this back to to your, your, your point, so in a way, I see you making a similar though perhaps kind of inverse argument to Freud. Freud says, okay, look, we can't directly observe the psychological depths of the subconscious, but, you know, they're they're definitely there. So the best we can do is is read the output of the subconscious. For example, you have things like dreams or or verbal slips, that sort of thing, in the same way we read a a literary text. And, you know, you're looking for symbols and and clues about underlying motivation and, and so on. But then you, in your argument, are saying, "Look, we can't observe psychological depths of the subconscious, and that's because they're definitely not there. Um, so the best that we can do is provide a, a reading of the output of the conscious mind in a similar way to how we read a literary text, like you know Anna Karenina, one that you talk about at length in the books. So in a way, your project is kind of the same as Freud's and the you know, people who took that similar approach, but the but the inverse." And uh, I don't know, to me, it's, all, it's, it's ultimately you're kind of saying overtly that, that, that Freud was wrong, but also there are aspects of it that you think are right. So can you maybe touch on that a little bit for me?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a very, very apposite uh, um, formulation. So I'm very, very interested, and it probably comes across in the book, um, in this, this distinction between um, understanding the world as meaningful and understanding the world as a, uh, a sort of causal, mechanical system. Um, and I think there really are fundamentally different ways of looking at the world. And, and one, one aspect of that, of course, is that from, if you're trying to understand the world from the point of view of meaning, you're understanding it as a human being. You're thinking, you know, what, what the, the, the truth about what a poem means is determined by, to think there is such a definitive thing, is determined by what people make of it. It's not you can't say, well, forget about the people, let's just put the people to one side. <laughs> let's just let's just take the actual raw text or the raw atoms or something. And what does it mean now? To which the answer is, well, nothing. It's 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 inherently, inherently a question is about the nature of re, the, re, the reaction interpretation that's that's created by, by people. And and of course it's not it's not um, rigid and definitive. Um whereas of course with something like when you try to understand a machine. Um, we'll have different opinions about how the machine works but the machine uh, there's a kind of truth about how it works so we assume irrespective of what we actually think um, whereas if we say that the real meaning of this poem is such and such but nobody, nobody in the history of humanity has ever thought, thought of this before that would be a very bizarre thing to say um, now I think you're absolutely right that I think for my, my money what Freud is doing is, 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 is really close to creative literature um, and sort of uh, and, it's, and it's not science so I think what's what's really impactful about Freud is the apl- application in a probably fairly um, free-wheeling way of you know, myth, mythology, and sort of ideas from just from all over the place about essentially stories, trying to construct stories about um, how inner conflicts arise and how they can be resolved, um, and taking those those narratives um, and applying them. To, 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 to humanity in a general way, and also applying the narrative generation to dreams, so saying well, what this dream is really about is this, just like you're interpreting a poem. And and my starting point would be to think well, Freud and uh, his like are, are, are very clever interpreters, like literary critics or like readers, um, but they're fooling themselves, if they think they're really seeing seeing into deep reality in the same way that um, you'd be fooling yourself to think. Uh, if you're reading a novel, what I'm really seeing is the the ground truth about the the the, 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 the meaning of the text or the inherent characters of the uh, the, the characters in the text. So it's I, I think it's, it's literary criticism disguised as science, I suppose.
0: Yeah. So maybe one way to characterize your position is that. And this is something you're fairly explicit about. This first part that our behavior resembles fictional characters. In uh, the, you know us as actual embodied individuals, there is there are just as many facts about the reasons why we do things as there are facts about why Anna Karenina does things. Uh, i.e., no facts because they're they're neither there in the the fictitious or the um, reality based behavior. And then what's happening on top of that is that the reason we feel that that depth is there is because the mind is acting as this literary critic, putting on a, an explanation, an interpretation, a, a coherence, a, uh, you know, some sort of veneer of meaning to, to all of it. And one of the stories that we tell ourselves about that is about beliefs and desires and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, but that, that can be just the purview of the, the literary critic that does not necessarily mean that those beliefs and desires actually uh, m- motivated those, uh, th- those initial behaviors.
1: No, absolutely right. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think thinking of ourselves as fictional characters or as no more well defined fictional characters is, is quite right. And, and when we introspect about how, yeah, what we feel about things and what we think, and certainly I have the feeling that I have a very little idea. Um and if you you know if I ask myself, you know, why do I do particular things or why do I find them interesting, I can I can sort of, as it were, prattle on about them in the same way I can prattle on about Anna Karenina. Um, but I don't have any mainline sort of uh route to 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 the truth. And I think that's not because the truth's lurking in there, but it's hard to fathom. It's simply you know, I, I'm I'm just another fictional character, right? There's no deeper truth about my motivations. Um, and how to explain them in as it were words of English or, or narratives than there is to 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 sort of definitively explain Anna or either.
0: Well Nick, you've been very generous with your time. And uh it was fun to talk to you. And I'm not sure that I, I, I will proclaim to be a, a full uh devotee of the idea that the mind is flat, but I certainly think that a lot of your arguments are worth considering and, and worth spending a little bit more time thinking about what the the implications of, of, of that might be, if if there are aspects of, of the way we traditionally view the mind that, that can be rethought in, uh, you know, even an approximation of the wholesale manner which you're proposing. So thank you for taking the time to talk and and for your book and for all your great work over the the many years you've been doing cognitive science and, and, and writing.
1: Well, thanks so much, Cody. It's been a real pleasure to chat. Great questions and uh, very interesting discussion. And indeed, um, nobody should be too convinced by anything, including uh, including me, about my own theories. But uh, but yeah, very very interesting to have the chance to talk about all these things.
0: That was my conversation with Nick Chater. Thanks for listening. One avenue that we didn't get around to in the conversation is about the heterogeneity of stories. Nick and I both tended to talk about narratives as if they're monolithic, as if we're beholden to only one but I don't think that either of us would defend that position. It's more of a shorthand. And to be fair, Nick does talk explicitly first thing in chapter one of his book about conflicting elements within a story. But to me, there, there is a big difference between consciously thinking of our lives or even history more generally as adhering to a single story versus multiple overlapping stories or even different ways of telling the same basic story. It, actually reminds me of an idea from Bertrand Russell, who came up at the beginning of our conversation. I call it Russell's Identity Gallery. He uses this metaphor of a collection of portraits. He was an aristocrat, after all, instead of a collection of stories. This is a quote from his 1930 book, The Conquest of Happiness. Every civilized man or woman has, I suppose, some picture of himself or herself, and is annoyed when anything happens that seems to spoil this picture. The best cure is to have not only one picture, but a whole gallery, and to select the one appropriate to the incident in question. If some of the portraits are a trifle laughable, so much the better. It is not wise to see oneself all day long as a hero of high tragedy. I do not suggest that one should see oneself always as a clown in a comedy, for those who do this are even more irritating, little tact is required in choosing a role appropriate to the situation. Of course, if you can forget yourself and not play a part at all, that is admirable. But if playing a part has become a second nature, consider that you act in repertory and so avoid monotony. So am I convinced that the mind is flat? Probably not. But I think much of Nick's arguments are useful counterpoints for reexamining some of our most firmly entrenched beliefs or in Nick's term, mental traditions. And I think there's a lot that we can get out of focusing less on specific, isolatable psychological causes in our own behavior and the behavior of others, and instead focus more on putting together the overall story. And like Russell said, the more we rely on just one story or portrait of ourselves, the more vulnerable we are to the fragility of that single story. If you did enjoy this show, please consider giving it a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. And as always, you can find the entire feed of my work on my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. That rating and subscribing really does go a long way towards helping me to support and grow this work, so I really do appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and I will be back here next week with another episode of The Meaning Lab Podcast. Thank you.